Welcome everyone to the 12th episode of AbbeyCast. We're grateful to have with us today John Wisniewski. John is the organist here at Dalesford Abbey as well as heading up our HR here at the Abbey. And John, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for inviting me. and uh, I'm looking forward to a good conversation with you and anyone else who will be listening. Definitely. And like we always have, John is always a uh, just a fountain of interesting conversation and life experiences and uh, his spiritual journey is always weaved in amongst those things. So today we're going to just kind of learn a little bit about John, go through over what's brought him to the Abbey, what has brought him to the Abbey and where he finds God in the everyday. So uh, John, your professional journey has been quite diverse and it's in some way landed you in some very interesting positions that ultimately have kind of circled back here to Dalesford. So would you mind giving us that backstory of what brought you here professionally to the Abbey? Uh, professionally, uh, I'd say what brought me here to the Abbey was more personal than professional. Fair enough. Um, it was looking for a place to, to worship. I was pretty dissatisfied with parishes. I had uh, spent eight years in the seminary, and so my expectations uh, of what church worship should be like, uh, were pretty high. Mm. And uh, and that I, was around the time of Vatican II, I would guess, right? Correct. Uh, Vatican II ended during my uh, seminary career. Okay. And, uh, some of the professors that I had were uh, council experts in theological matters. Cardinal Kroll had a number of young priests with him as uh, his theological advisors, and uh, they were probably the best professors, most open and challenging uh, that, I, that I've ever experienced. So um, there were stories about the Abbey as being uh, a place of refuge for everyone, and I decided that this might be a good place to try a retreat. And uh, so I, I booked a weekend retreat, and I was out walking around, and this um, man who was a little older than I, I am, uh, was dressed in jeans and was doing a little bit of gardening. And he introduced himself and I just, his name was John Neitzel, and I assumed he was just an employee of the Abbey. And I was, we had a nice conversation and then I was actually floored when uh, he celebrated Mass at 1130 <laughs> as the Abbot of Dalesford. <laughs> and, uh, and we became quite good friends and uh, he was a great influence in my spiritual life. Uh, not a formal spiritual director, but certainly an, an informal one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess my first professional contact with the Abbey... Uh, is this outside of seminary now? This is outside of okay. seminary. Mm -hmm. Was uh, I had a background as a professional fundraiser. Mm. And uh, the Abbey... Uh, was about to launch a campaign uh, to build the residence that the Norbertines are actually living in now. Okay. And uh, the abbot asked me if I would uh, work with him on raising the money, and I, I did, and it was quite successful. We surpassed our goal, and all the pledges were met. Right. And this was still Abbot Neitzel? This was Abbot Neitzel, okay. yes. And we, we remained friends. Uh, 
uh, until he died, actually. Okay, very nice. Um, the thing that's, I think, unique about the Abbey is the ability to meet somebody like Abbot Neitzel, not knowing that they are a Norbertine mm. uh, priest. Mm -hmm. uh, the interaction between the community here and lay people and other clergy that come uh, to uh, experience God in a different way. Um, one of the things that Abbot Neitzel encouraged me to do was to find a spiritual director. And um, I tried a few people and finally uh, settled on a Jesuit, uh, the pastor of Old St. Joseph's in Philadelphia. And um, I had him for many years and uh, he gave me a very different perspective on relationships with God okay. uh, than I had had been formally trained to think of God. Um, the way Jesuits meditate is quite different from the way we were taught to meditate at the seminary. And uh, that's been very helpful to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's helped me to see God in uh, just ordinary people, in, in things, in nature. I mean, it's not pantheism, but yeah. where, wherever you, you look, uh, God is bound to be somewhere yes. uh, since he's the ground of all being. I mean, it's God has to be in, in, in everything. Panentheism. Yes. God is in all things. That's yes. correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, I've tried to incorporate that into uh, my professional uh, development career. Okay. Uh, I started out uh, teaching, uh, which I absolutely hated. See, I didn't even know that about you. I didn't know you were a teacher at one point. Yes, uh, I was a permanent substitute. Okay. And part of it might be that I was teaching for months at a time, a subject that I really had no yeah. uh, pedagogical experience in doing before. What were you teaching? I taught biology. That was the longest thing that I, that okay. I ever taught. Okay. Uh, and then some uh, stints in history and English was fine. English was easy. Sure. But I, I developed, and I also did on-call day, day teaching, like didn't know I was going to teach until that morning. And I, uh, so I developed a, a lesson plan that uh, no matter what the class was, I taught them local history. Hey, that's excellent. So and probably something we don't get enough of. Right. It, uh, I was lucky. I you know, found uh, an old book on the history of Schuylkill County, which is where I lived. Mm -hmm. And I just basically had to summarize the chapters. Uh, and I, if I needed to teach for three days or 10 days, there was enough material in there. And the kids were mildly interested in it, <laughs> at least. Um, but uh, teaching was not for me. I really felt trapped and confined mm -hmm. in the classroom. And so I just began looking at want ads and uh, the Boy Scouts of America were looking for a position that was called an executive director. Mm -hmm. uh, local scout councils were, are still, I think, uh, obliged to raise their own operational funds and okay. recruit their own leaders. Um, and I believe Tom Watson was the chairman of IBM, and he was also the volunteer chairperson of the Boy Scouts. So the uh, 
employees throughout the country got to go to IBM training schools mm. uh, to learn basic management techniques, uh, okay. um, interpersonal relationships techniques, establishing rapport with people uh, quickly, mm -hmm. and um, sales techniques that were very uh, transferable to mm -hmm. raising money. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a, that was a challenge, uh, and I liked doing it. I liked meeting all the different kinds of people, and uh, was was very comfortable uh, with that. And why was it a challenge for you? The uh, which part? The, well, well, you said it was a challenge. Oh, it was a challenge. It was just just the experience of learning those uh, skills, learning or... the skills, mm -hmm. and uh, creating a totally different idea of what money is. Okay. I mean, nobody's going to give you their last million dollars, mm -hmm. nor will they be offended if you think they can afford to give them a million dollars. One of my biggest mistakes in fundraising was asking a van for $2 million, and he immediately said, okay. So oh, I instantly knew that I should have asked for 10, something that he had Jeez, to yeah, right. think about. Yeah. And uh, that was not for the Boy Scouts, that was for the graduate health system. Okay. And, uh, it, uh, it taught me an important lesson never to underestimate uh, what someone is able to give you. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, that's a great fault of a lot of volunteer fundraising efforts. I mm. think that people think, well, gee, uh, you know, I couldn't possibly afford to give $10,000. Well. You shouldn't be asking people. There, there are techniques that you can use using Venn diagrams and talking to different people about okay. how much they think gifts can be. Yeah, and that was that really became refined in uh, my political life. I became okay. a political fundraiser after, after my time in the Boy Scouts was finished. Mm -hmm. uh, Drew Lewis was uh, a the finance chairman for the suburban area of Philadelphia. It was a volunteer position, and he decided he wanted to uh, run for governor. Okay. And uh, he thought that I did a good job at fundraising for the Boy Scouts and um, tried to recruit me to work for him. I think I was, this would have been in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And working for the Boy Scouts, I was earning uh, $11,000 a year. Oh, wow. And uh, so he, he offered me $14,000 a year. <laughs> and I still didn't take the job because I knew nothing about politics. I okay. wasn't really interested in it. Sure. And um, Now, uh, what year was this again? Uh, early 70s. Early 70s. But would you say that politics back then was what it is now? Nothing like what it is now. Okay. But it was beginning to change to yeah. what it is now. Right. Well, I'm thinking that's the, the point in which, you know, computers start to become a thing and we start to have a little bit more connectivity that way, a little bit more exposure to the world and what's happening. Um, it, that, that's all true, but I think that the main change... Uh, that occurred was instead of being a career of service, it became a career of self-serving. Mm. Mm. Um, many people involved in statewide positions, this is the best job they've ever had in their entire lives. 
Great pensions, too. Great pensions. Yeah. And the pension is vested after 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a few places that you can find that that happens. Yeah. So how did you keep your center within that environment of change and transition? How did you maintain those principles that you had? Um, I still dabbled with the Abbey. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that was my grounding source. Okay. Uh, now, were you still receiving spiritual direction at this time, too? Uh, yes, okay. I was. Okay. Uh, I was with the, uh, the Jesuit at, from Old St. Joseph's. Okay. Still receiving spiritual direction and was informally advising uh, the Abbey on the best way to approach uh, raising money. And some mm -hmm. of those practices are still in place, I'm happy to say. Wow, okay. And, um, but the... Although I met people who were uh, quite wealthy uh, when I was working for the Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. uh, I, I met people who were astonishingly wealthy working for politics. Mm. And uh, I, bet. It, uh, I, I had really funny and unusual experiences. Uh, one of the funniest things that happened to me was uh, one day... Uh, a donor secretary called me and said he, she was sorry, but he had to postpone our meeting until the following week. And no big deal. That happened all the time. Mm -hmm. So the next week, I, I had my appointment and came in, and he was very apologetic. And he said he had a chance to go salmon fishing in Canada. And, oh. Uh, that uh, he... He liked salmon fishing in Canada, and, mm -hmm. I, said, and I responded, oh, I'd like to do that someday. And uh, without trying to be uh, demeaning in any way, he said, oh, where do you go? As though <laughs> everyone, Alaska, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as though everyone you know, spends their you know, three or four day long weekends flying somewhere to do salmon fishing. Right. And uh, uh, another uh, person that I... Uh, uh, worked with closely, uh, had two rather large planes, like DC-9 type large. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, one was for for him and his guests, mm -hmm. and the other plane was for his dogs, because if he was going to be a long way, he wanted to take his dogs with him. I thought you were going to say his family is, or his, his team of assistants, or something. No, no, his dogs. dogs. Okay. He really loved his dogs. He yeah. didn't like very many, very many other people. Though. Well, pets are like family, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. And uh, so th those were the kind of strange experiences that I had. Yeah, I guess with um, not all people for sure, but with those that have a really astonishing amount of wealth, that can be uh, its own existence in itself outside of society sometimes maybe. I'm, yeah, I, I would have no idea, but I could only imagine from maybe what I've seen in movies and things like that. And, and that's the movies are often accurate. I, okay. I lived for six months in uh, with the family in Pittsburgh, and uh, it, it felt like I was living in what we now know as the Downton Abbey lifestyle. Okay, uh, we would have dinner uh, on a beautiful polished uh, mahogany table. If you wanted something else, you stepped on a little button by your chair. Okay. And then uh, uh, somebody from the kitchen would come out uh, to uh, give you what you wanted. But 
after dinner, we'd go into the library and maybe have a, a glass of port or a cocktail and chat for, for a few minutes. And then go to our own rooms or do whatever we wanted. And mm -hmm. I was with them in the winter, so when I would go to my room, the fire was lighted in my fireplace and uh, the bed was turned down. It was pretty much four-star service. But this was yeah. this was just their life. This is the way they lived. Now, uh, fortunately, this family was also extremely generous. Mm. Um, the husband... Uh, ran the businesses, the, uh, his, his wife uh, was involved in politics mm -hmm. uh, pretty deeply, but she was also greatly involved in charity work in Western, Western Pennsylvania. Okay, and this was in Pittsburgh, you said? Pittsburgh, right. Okay. So they, they, were, they were a lot of fun to be with. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know her husband as well, but, but she was also a, a woman of great faith. Mm. Uh, she was deeply supportive of, their, of the Presbyterian church that she belonged to, uh -huh. uh, gave modest gifts for things that I was involved in. Uh -huh. uh, so it was easy, uh, as my spiritual director wanted me to do, uh -huh. to, to find, she was easy to find charity uh -huh. in, and uh, the face of uh, Jesus in, uh -huh. in her. Uh -huh. uh, other people were a little tougher. Sure. Uh, but if you, if you look hard enough, you, you kind of uh, find them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you don't even have to look hard. They're, they're just right there, and you're, and you're missing. You That's know, true. What, what yeah, it falls doing. on us to see that, yeah. Um, anyway, my political experience brought me in contact with, uh, the, with, you'll obviously know what party I'm working, I work for. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm although I wasn't, I've been registered as an independent most of my life. Um, but uh, I did spend some personal time with President Nixon. Okay. Spent a lot of time with President Ford. Okay. Uh, a great deal of time with Nelson Rockefeller, Ronald Reagan, uh, and uh, got to do a lot of really interesting things at the White House. I would imagine, yeah. And uh, In the Oval Office at all? Yeah, I, sure. I you know, have my photo taken in the Oval <laughs> Office uh, several times. And uh, I like how you go, yeah, sure. <laughs> I was in the Oval Office. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's cool. Well, you kind of become yeah. jaded, too. That, uh, but it also makes yeah. you not afraid of anyone because hmm. you see how much they depend on their staffs uh, to write their, their legislative policies. I yeah, mean, and that's an interesting point you'd be about, you know, uh, jaded right and it's like working in the church and for the church it can expose you to some challenging things but at the same time too the gifts and the joy that can come from that so it's like trying to hold all that together right mm -hmm. yeah. that's a lot i i've never met joe biden i, I hope that might come about, about someday yeah that'd be interesting yeah uh i don't know how many if you know that he is a graduate of archmere academy that's right yeah yeah mm -hmm. so, down uh, in delaware mm -hmm. he does have a norbertine connection that's right yeah but uh, anyway it came time for me to make a change in politics i could tell what way politics was heading mm. and i just didn't want to be a part of it would you have guessed that based on your experiences <coughs> back then 
we would be now where we are politically. I I would wouldn't have guessed that we would be where we are. I mean, no one has a crystal ball, but just from everything that you were putting together and intuiting at that time, you could see that uh, you said that you could see that there was a change in direction happening. So uh, that, that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, there were, particularly on a, uh, a federal level, mm -hmm. there were a lot of wealthy people mm -hmm. who uh, were involved in the Senate, uh, John Hines, John Kerry, uh, and the, the people like, like John Hines, I, I knew him best of, of all the people. Mm -hmm. uh, his whole family was... Uh, was concerned with the, the welfare of everyone, mm -hmm. not just with maintaining their own mm -hmm. fortune. Uh, John Heinz's wife, Teresa, was born in Mozambique. Okay. Her father was a, a missionary doctor. Mm. Uh, and uh, so she, she was aware of the struggle that people uh, went through. Mm -hmm. And uh, a, a very charming and wonderful uh, woman and uh, I think she may have had a great influence on uh, Senator Hines okay but it, but it was easy to see that they were not only involved in protecting uh, their ketchup factory but <laughs> uh, but also the way people lived yeah yeah uh, local politicians uh, were not doing this so much from a sense of service mm -hmm. as uh, looking for ways to make things better for a smaller group of people. Okay. They're, they're, the universe that they were interested in was was not the whole population. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but of uh, patronage was uh, was greatly abused, uh, applying for good county or state jobs, mm. uh, and uh, you had to deliver on votes. Uh, fundraising was entirely... Uh, very different uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, bundles of cash were passed around by lobbyists, by contractors. Uh, mm -hmm. It uh, it was becoming a very uh, self-centered and corrupt system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally think that the best way to uh, finance political uh, campaigns is through some sort of public financing with a limit on a very strict limit on how much people can give I also don't think anybody should be able to serve more than one six-year term mm, I would mm, yeah it, that'll never happen but mm -hmm. I think that would be ideal that uh, mm -hmm. because then you could really do what is best for the country and not it takes you a, a year to learn what you're doing and then you spend the next year campaigning. Yeah, and amidst all the, uh, you know, we could say fog and smog of, you know, he said, she said that's being thrown around within the political, political sphere now, and even some might say distraction, I think mm -hmm. validly to some extent. Um, there is that uh, need to get back to the core principles, right? right. And um, it seems like there is a, a dilation, at least kind of like from that fundraising perspective that occurs of like, how do I consider the whole while also considering the needs of a specific group, which the Boy Scouts or the Abbey or whatever it might be, right? And that's 
kind of a balancing act, I would guess, to consider the macro and the micro together as a whole. Um, so when you talk about the idea of charity, you kind of learn from that experience in living with this family, very wealthy family, yet also a very charitable family in Pittsburgh. Um, how would you bridge together those concepts of the common understanding of charity in terms of people giving something, usually their, you know, we say time, talent, or treasure, right? Usually their right. treasure. Um, but also that biblical sense of charity, right? Charity as virtue. Where do you see those two connecting, maybe even conflicting at times? Well, I, I don't think they conflict so okay. much. Yeah. Um, they can, charity can be expressed in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I'll kind of jump ahead in my chronological way of thinking mm -hmm. about this to give you an example, a great example of charity. Mm -hmm. um, I, I became involved uh, with an arts company in New York, uh, Omega Peace Arts. Okay. It was a liturgical dance company. We're talking mm. about the 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. And uh, Carla DeSolo was the founder of the company, and she still uh, teaches and dances out in Berkeley now. Okay. Um, when I became involved with Carla, um, she was, her company was in residence at the Episcopal Cathedral of St. John the Divine okay. in New York. Uh, just a fantastic uh, architectural monument in America. I think mm. it's missed by so many people that uh, tour great churches, and this certainly is one. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I became the, the chairperson of the, uh, of the dance company, and mm -hmm. fundraising was one of my primary duties as the okay. chairperson. I certainly couldn't do dance choreography <laughs> and or select the dancers. Oh, I thought but, you were going to dance yourself. Uh, uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> and uh, so Carla uh, liked to go to the opera. And uh, by now my career has moved on to uh, being the vice president of a healthcare system. Okay. And so uh, we were always entertaining doctors, trying to recruit doctors. Mm -hmm. And it was nothing, not unusual to take the train or use a driver to take us to Lincoln Center to go to the opera or to ballet. And not to interrupt you, but I'm just also having this thought that this is also another industry sector that's really transforming at this time too, probably. Right? Uh, uh, very, yeah. very much so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. That, that, that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I made arrangements to, to meet Carla uh, at a restaurant across the street from Lincoln Center and uh, so I was in a taxi on my way there from uh, uh, taking the train up from Philadelphia and stuck in a typical New York traffic jam. And I looked out the window uh, because I was late for meeting Carla. And uh, there was uh, a woman who appeared uh, to the casual or critical observer that here's a homeless lady. Mm -hmm. She had bags of stuff around her. Mm -hmm. And this was in the middle of winter, and it's mm -hmm. very cold, and uh, was a partic particularly cold day. Mm -hmm. And uh, Carla is you know, a typical dancer. She probably weighs 85 pounds and uh, mm -hmm. very slight. And uh, I could see Carla talking to this woman, and uh, Carla took off her coat 
and uh, gave it to this poor uh, mm -hmm. street lady. And uh, I, I was uh, so deeply touched uh, by, by that gesture. And so at dinner, I, dinner was over and... Uh, and you were just watching from the car, I was right? watching yeah. from the car. Yeah. And uh, so we had dinner and I said, uh, I'll get your coat. And she said, oh, I thought it was a lot warmer uh, than it actually was. And I stupidly left the house without my coat. Mm. I mean, that, that's true charity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to take no credit for it. No credit. Yeah. You know, not aware that she was observed. And uh, I always had a high opinion of, of Carla anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it got even higher. Sure. And she, was and she also, didn't know you were watching either. So. No, she had yeah, no yeah, idea. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and Carla ended up being very supportive. This was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, so the AIDS epidemic was, was rampaging. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of her dance students or people in her company were suffering from AIDS. Okay. And, and she was really never afraid uh, to, to go near them mm -hmm. or touch them, and, uh, mm. give them whatever support she needed. Yeah. And yeah. that also connects with the Norbertines. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, I was at Graduate Hospital at that time, and uh, Graduate Hospital and Pennsylvania Hospital were the only two hospitals in Philadelphia willing uh, to admit AIDS patients because okay. it was a dangerous, unknown uh, disease, the right. nature, how many ways it could be transmitted. Mm -hmm. But uh, many of the uh, people, uh, I, I would try to go to visit them, and uh, some of them wanted to speak with the priest, mm -hmm. and I would al always call someone at the Abbey, yeah. uh, from uh, Andrew Saperni to Joe Serrano mm -hmm. to uh, Abbott Neitzel mm -hmm. to uh, Ron Rossi, I mean, they, they all responded to the call yeah. and uh, were very happy to uh, be able to offer their a very special ministry mm -hmm. when a lot of clergy uh, didn't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, one of Jesus's primary ministries was healing the sick. Right. Yeah. And particularly the outcasts. Exactly. These people were really outcasts. The lepers, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. It was one of the few times that I that I actually fired nurses. Uh, there were th three women who uh, just did not want to take care of AIDS patients. Okay. And uh, nurses don't get to pick no. who, who they will care for. Right. I mean, if they had been pregnant, I probably would have had a different uh, you know, approach sure. toward the situation. Yeah. But, but they weren't. And... Uh, so uh, they, they were given a choice to fulfill their duty as nurses, just as the doctors and the mm -hmm. medical residents were doing, and the cleaning staff were hey, I mean, the job elsewhere. What they signed up to do, right? Right. Yeah, which, I mean, nothing against, you know, calling our healthcare professionals heroes, but it, it is the job they signed up to do. And when a pandemic hits, that's your real call to duty in some senses, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting uh, kind of comparison there in situations, what we're experiencing now to uh, what you were experiencing during the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, this sounds like a commercial for old St. Joseph's <laughs> in uh, 
<laughs> we've we've had many Joseph. a commercial and plug right. on this podcast. It's A-OK. Uh, but Old St. Joseph's was also very responsive mm. uh, to, uh, to, the, to the needs of the patients. And uh, working at the hospital was a great was a great experience for me, and uh, the frontline workers, and by frontline workers, I mean the nurses, aides, uh, the uh, cleaning staff, mm. uh, couldn't possibly be paid mm. uh, enough. They mm. they have to get their satisfaction sure. on a much higher level, mm-hmm. and uh, so often they're they're neglected and not. Uh, uh, paid what they what they need to live. Sure. Uh, I in my role at the hospital, I was able to have a great influence on salaries, and mm. uh, we also did a lot of really interesting uh, outreach work, not just in the United States, but in uh, uh, in Caribbean uh, okay. countries, uh, particularly the. Di- Dominican Republic. Okay. So when, if I could take it back a second to um, your earlier experience with, I believe it was, was, you said IBM. Yes. They had you to a, it was a management course and taught you all these different things about fundraising and whatnot. And you said that you came to define or conceptualize money in a new way. And do you think that then lent itself, that understanding then led itself to this more current experience you were having with, within managing a system? Um, I, no, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, okay. Um, mm-hmm. As someone who is trying to better understand money himself, I'm right. just, just curious what kind of connections you were making there. Yeah. Uh, this is, here, here's how... I have to use a personal story to tell tell this, but mm-hmm. but it's it's a good personal story. Okay. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to hear a bad one. That's okay. <laughs> uh, and and it was uh, a dangerous ploy on my part. Mm. Uh, I've now left the graduate health system. Uh, I left at a t- I was at with the graduate health system for ten years. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time I left, we had acquired four other hospitals, all not for profits and established outpatient centers for all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, actually all, the hospital had uh, four vice presidents and okay. all of us left basically at the same time as the hospital board made a decision to uh, change from a not-for-profit institution mm-hmm. to a for-profit institution. Okay. And the, the philosophy is totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, we always focused on patient care, mm-hmm. and uh, that's not necessarily uh, what for profits focus on. Right, right. Uh, but let me tell you a money story. Okay. It didn't happen at graduate, it happened at uh, an assisted living center that I was managing. Okay. Um, budget this was my first year there um, the owners uh, when i interviewed for the job uh, the community was less than a year old and they had spent uh, it, it held 120 people 
and they had spent roughly $3 million on marketing, and they had 11 residents. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just not sustainable. No. And so at, at my interview, uh, I, I was certainly more gutsy because of all my experience of yeah. meeting high-powered people and learning that they're just people. Mm -hmm. And uh, during the interview, they told me they wanted a 30% return. And I said, well, then I'm not interested in the job. I can give you somewhere between 4% and 10%, mm -hmm. but never 30%. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the, one of the owners said to me, well, why would we hire you then? And I said, well, because it's obvious you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, the guy's accountant was sitting next to him. And uh, he, later, Kenny told me, he said, I can't believe you said that mm. uh, to, uh, to, to Kenny. Yeah. And he said, if you had been working for him, he probably would have fired you right there. But instead, for some reason, you got hired. Well, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's a good example of honesty being the best policy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I've heard from a number of spiritual teachers to just always tell the truth. Right. And when you think about it, that's hard sometimes because someone will be like, oh, do you want to, uh, you know, come meet so-and-so? And you're like, no, not really. Right. But, you know, yeah. you know that it would be like a nice thing to do. Oh, sure. Yeah. And you're not telling the truth, right? right. That, that's hard. How do you share that radical honesty in such yeah. a way? And here you are in a job interview with, a lot on the line, I would gather, right? And yeah, plus I didn't have a job because I quit the other job. Well, then, yeah, you yeah. certainly had a, a lot at stake yeah. in um, that authenticity yeah. and that radical honesty was what got you the job. Yeah, and uh, it helped in a lot of different ways. Mm. Um, we were at budget time. This mm -hmm. is my second year there, and they wanted to give a very minimal raise to mm. some people because the place still wasn't making money. And I mean, you need to be at probably 80% occupancy mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to cover operating expenses. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, uh, I had to think like, uh, they've totally rejected the raises that I had included, okay. uh, for the employees. So I said, okay, I'm going to ask everybody to reach in their pockets, take out the, your wallet or your cash, whatever's in it, and uh, just put it out here on the table. Why? You know, they all want to know why. So we're doing a little experiment, mm -hmm. I said. So mm -hmm. everybody, the three guys that were sitting around the table plus me, all put our money on the table. I had about $100 in my wallet. Anyway, the total amount of money was on the table was uh, just shy of $1,000. Okay. And I said, okay, this is pocket change for all of us. Mm. I said, there are, out of the roughly 100 employees that work here, Charlie, the uh, director of patient care, a registered nurse, mm -hmm. and I make more than this every week. Mm. And only two people, 2% 2 of your employees, make what you're just carrying around in your pocket that mm. we've just collectively shown. Yeah. So I didn't get everything that I asked for, but, we, but I, I got 
more than half of what I wanted to do for the employees. Yeah, and I imagine that you taught them a pretty powerful lesson in that yeah. simple action, too. Yeah, and mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you just have to uh, really take a risk on, on things like that. Yeah, I would imagine, and that's within, like you said, that difference between not-for-profit and for-profit. When you're working not-for-profit, especially maybe for an organization that um, you know, is really doing super charitable work and that, you know, even the gospel sense of the word, there can be a humility there that could be a block for some people to say, not to say, but to ask for that money, to ask for that support. And um, I, this is something we've talked about before, but, you know, it seems like you've acquired a lot of skills over your lifetime that have allowed you that sense of confidence in those situations to make that ask that you know is going to benefit the greater good right. right it's just targeting a group that's maybe a little hard into that idea to get them to open and i would imagine that it is that biblical sense that gospel sense of charity that comes through you and what you're trying to do and how you're communicating and not just telling them what's going to happen but also kind of teaching them how this could happen right in a way yeah one of the the most interesting sad and yet in some aspects, joyful uh, parts of uh, my job has been uh, being with patients when they're dying mm. uh, and uh, watching the staff uh, care for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some people welcome death. They, they, yeah. they have strong faith that are looking forward to dying mm. and meeting their Redeemer. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, one woman in particular was incredibly nasty to everyone, mm -hmm. uh, staff, fellow residents. I mean, she she just was a nasty person mm -hmm. until she found out she had pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. It was like somebody turned a switch on. Uh, yeah. She called every employee uh, on the phone uh -huh. and apologized to them. Oh, wow. Uh, and fellow her fellow residents and uh, the, the woman really made peace with all of, all of her people uh, as well as prepared herself to uh, to meet God that's beautiful just yeah. all on her own all totally on her own isn't it crazy how the the soul just knows sometimes yeah. like you yeah. said like flipping a switch yeah yeah and we had another lady who was a, a real live wire in the community uh, Grace, she had been a Bell telephone uh, operator. Where okay. I had uh, the plug in the switches. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Grace uh, opted not to have kidney dialysis. Okay. Which is a pretty difficult death. And uh, she was well liked in the community mm -hmm. and uh, had a great sense of humor. And uh, so one day when she was, you know, Close to the end of her life, I, I visited her, and uh, she said, you know, John, I want you to do me a favor uh, when I'm gone. Will you? And, you know, that's, that's a big question, like, will you? And it's, yeah. You know, like, well, you don't want to say it depends, but... Yeah, <laughs> what's the favor? So she said... Uh, in, in my apartment, in my bedroom closet, there's a box with the pink ribbon tied around it. She said, that has my cat's ashes in it. 
would you put her ashes in the coffin with me before they close the lid? Yeah. And I said, oh, sure, that's, that's easy, easy to do. She said, yeah. but I have another favor. Uh-oh. And uh, when everyone is gone, right before, get the undertaker to reopen the lid. And she said, and put on, put on my head that big purple hat that I have. <laughs> that's cute. Yeah. She that's said, I want to be all dressed up when I, uh, when I arrive in heaven. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to see uh, uh, God in people like that. Yeah, yeah. And you've had, you know, these experiences which have taken you uh, not just all over different professions in some sense, but all over the world too, and have had the opportunity to encounter God in some special sacred spaces as well, worship places and places of retreat. And... If you've tuned in, those listening at home, if you've tuned in at all to any of the broadcasts here from our Abbey Church at Dalesford, uh, you will have noticed that uh, the Abbey Church, of course, changes with the liturgical seasons, but it's also beautifully decorated, and that is much to John's credit, who is in charge of setting that space in there for the most part and ordering the flowers and making sure that they look beautiful in the church. And we, as I do the live stream, work with John together uh, to you know, see what looks good on camera and how we can enhance that. So um, from your travels and experiences in different worship spaces um, and you know, this, this journey of finding God in, in all things in the everyday, um, what would you say goes into making a good worship space be it a, a church, like an official worship space, or even, say, our office or bedroom or home or something like well, that? Uh, I, but thank you for those kind words that you oh, said Oh, yeah, about of course, that. yeah. I also get complaints, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> I get those, too. <laughs> right. Uh, instead of talking about all the places that... I don't know how much time we have left to continue talking but uh, i'm good yeah whatever good. Okay. Yeah, you need or are comfortable i with. need another sip of water here no problem yeah and yeah yeah how, however you want to kind of uh close us out here or whatever you need to share i'm all for um i i've been very fortunate to have traveled all over the world literally everything from uh <coughs> everything from um Footsteps in the Saint, of St. Paul doing uh, that journey, mm -hmm. uh, starting in uh, the Holy Land and uh, crossing the sea and mm -hmm. ending up in what is now Turkey. And th that, that's, I'm not going to stop there, but I'm just going to put, uh, put out what was one of my most amazing finds in my journey. Yeah. Was, and that I was, uh, you know, might have been Ephesus. I'm, I'm not sure what city it mm -hmm. is in. I was wandering around, and uh, there was a mosque, a, a very old mosque, but still in use today, mm -hmm. and it was dedicated uh, in honor of Mary, mm. the mother of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I, w I was kind of amazed that I had no idea yeah. that Islam and today's Muslims honor Mary in much the same way we do mm -hmm. by... Uh, uh, dedicating buildings in her honor. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. But um, one of the uh, best buildings that I or grounds and as well as the church building itself that I have that I've experienced during this lockdown has been without 
leaving my uh, my home, and that's uh, Canterbury Cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. Can- you are a fan of those videos, often sending them to me and Father Andrew. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I pretty much on a daily basis, I just go to YouTube and I say, YouTube Canterbury Cathedral morning prayer. Mm-hmm. And Dean Robert Willis, uh, Dean Robert, uh, leads morning prayer uh, in the garden, in the Dean's Garden of Canterbury Cathedral. Oh, Sometimes with his cat. Right, his cat is always <laughs> jumping around. Sometimes with his chickens or ducks or turkeys yeah. or pigs. Uh, the, the, the most unusual, surprising uh, setting was one day when the camera finally got onto him. Uh, he was sitting on a bale of hay uh, in a little shed, uh, uh, helping, uh, patting the the head of a mother pig who had <laughs> just given birth to nine piglets. Oh man! And he was, I mean, he was picking up the little pigs to find, help them find a spot to nurse. Oh wow! That's I mean, cute. That's great. Had not to, opened and, uh, I mean, it's incredibly authentic. Yeah. Uh, but Canterbury Cathedral is a really interesting place. It's and have you been there? I've been many times. Okay. Uh, I never knew about this garden, though, which kind of disappoints me, so I'd like to go back yeah. and, and see the Dean's Garden. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, Can- Canterbury Cathedral has an astonishing history. It's built on the site of a church that was found it in 597 uh, uh, when Augustine uh, uh, of Hippo was mm-hmm. sent to uh, convert the Anglo-Saxons. Oh, wow. And from that initial uh, encounter grew Canterbury Cathedral. It was first called Christ Church, and okay. then as time went on, it became a cathedral. And the building that stands there today still has parts of it that are roughly 1,100 years old. Wow. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, Dean Robert, and uh, well, I'll, no, I'll do I'll do a little more in Canterbury Cathedral. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, particularly noteworthy because it's where the place where uh, Henry II said to his knights, "Who will rid me of this troublesome priest?" Okay, and uh, so Thomas Becket was martyred mm. uh, by a group of four knights. Okay. Uh, during evening prayer in Canterbury Cathedral on, I think, December the 29th. He was martyred in the cathedral. In the cathedral, oh, wow. in a side chapel. Oh, wow. And you can still visit the chapel of the martyrdom. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so uh, it's uh, Chaucer's Canterbury, Canterbury Tales mm-hmm. is based on pilgrimages to Canterbury Cathedral mm-hmm. to visit uh, the site of Thomas of Becket. Mm-hmm. And um, a contemporary, well, it's not contemporary now, it's almost 100 years old, but T.S. Eliot wrote a, a wonderful play that is still produced today, mm-hmm. Murder in a Cathedral. Okay. And uh, that's based on, tells the, the story of Thomas, of Thomas Becket. Okay. And uh, T.S. Eliot also wrote another. Uh, a collection of, bone, of of poems called uh, "The Naming of Cats," mm-hmm. which uh, the musical that 
I think opened in 1998 on Broadway, mm -hmm. Cats, is based on T.S. Eliot's poems. Really? Of the, of the naming of cats. John, there's always something new to learn from so, you. Yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. Useless knowledge, but... Jeopardy it, it, information. It, it is Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, one of the things that uh, happens during morning prayer, uh, conducted by the dean very informally, mm -hmm. he could have his chickens running around his feet, his cat could be sitting on the little table next to him, uh, dipping its paw in a pitcher of milk that the dean has for his tea. Uh -huh. and, uh, but uh, he always talks about things that happened uh, on today, mm -hmm. on this date, either mm -hmm. in history or are happening today. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you can see God in so many ways of the things that he brings to our attention. Mm -hmm. um, for example, today is Queen Elizabeth's birthday. Okay. I believe she'll be 95. Okay. I mean, and you can imagine what a sad day that will be, having lost yeah. her husband of 73 years. Was it last week? Last the burial was on Saturday. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it's, you know, I'm sure she's grateful for being uh, alive for so many years, but mm -hmm. is very sad about her mm -hmm. loss of Philip. Uh, Today is also Charlotte Bronte's uh, birthday, and everybody has probably read Jane Eyre or at least okay. heard of it mm -hmm. at, at some point. Uh, it's also the legendary birthday of the founding of Rome in 753 BC by the twins Romulus the and Remus that yeah. were right, yeah, nursed yeah. by a, a, a she-wolf. Right, right, yeah. Uh, a, you know, we, we know that that's just mythology, but uh, Rome shows evidence of having been inhabited by people 14,000 years ago, not merely 753 B.C. Right, right. But uh, Canterbury was a Benedictine monastery mm -hmm. uh, before the Reformation. Okay. And uh, St. Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm -hmm. and he is kind of the father of scholastic philosophy and you know, one of his major works is uh, proving the existence of God through mm -hmm. reason. That actually never worked for me, but uh, I guess it was, it was a great scholastic argument. And uh, Yeah, they, those guys back then were doing the best, guys and girls, all people back then, theologians, were doing the best they could with the knowledge they had. Right which now has advanced so far when it comes to science and technology right. and all that, yeah. But with, uh, with uh, Dean Robert, his morning prayer consists, he'll read a psalm, a scripture verse, uh, a thing that he, it, it's very easy to find God in the whole way he incorporates nature. He weaves this, and human thought and mm -hmm. revelation, he weaves everything into mm -hmm. a really beautiful tapestry. And, uh, Probably the most uh, important scriptural thing that, that I've learned from his is to think of all of Jesus' statements in the present tense. Mm -hmm. That this is not something that happened a long time ago that we're reading about. This is something that occurs uh, yes. right now. And yes. I guess that 
if you are a, an advocate of quantum physics, you, know, you, you sort of really can appreciate what uh, what he says about kind of an eternal now. And absolutely, he uh, speaks greatly of uh, the I am mm -hmm. uh, statements of. Of Jesus and mm -hmm. uh, I am the bread of life I am the light of the world uh, you know I am the sheep gate I am the shepherd uh, yeah it returns that mystical element back to right. the faith yeah and mm -hmm. um, so he's I, I would encourage anybody that has the time to look at him at YouTube Canterbury Cathedral and morning prayer yeah I would too John has shared these videos with me and others here at the Abbey they're a treat to watch they're fun they're uh, substantial. There's some real depth and uh, wisdom that's shared within there. So yeah. I'd recommend those as well. Yeah. yeah. And I, I look forward to meeting Dean Robert. Uh, I'm, I mean, you feel that you know him, I think, when he yeah. speaks to you. And he did spend time, he was at St. Thomas on Fifth Avenue in New York for, okay. for at least a year. And he's pastored in Africa and he's been to Asia and mm -hmm. he's really a Renaissance man with, uh, so have you booked your flight yet? Uh, not yet, but uh, so, someday soon. Someday soon as things start to open up here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, you know, wherever I've been, I've found God sometimes staring me in the face, uh, sometimes sneaking up. I, I want to share two personal experiences mm -hmm. where I, that I think proved to me the the existence of God in, sure. in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, one, I have no recollection of, but I am, I was told it uh, mm -hmm. many times. Uh, this happened preschool. Mm -hmm. I was a you know, good little boy and usually listened. And uh, uh, back in the 1940s, nobody had cell phones or uh, wireless house phones or anything like mm -hmm. that. And I, we had, uh, a huge grape arbor in our backyard and uh, my mother had me out playing in the grape arbor and the, uh, the phone rang and she told me to stay there and she'd be right back and she ran up to the house to answer the phone mm -hmm. and for some reason unknown to me even today or at that time I didn't listen to her and after about two minutes I ran up to the house and uh, a huge sinkhole appeared right where I was playing. Whoa! So I'm sure my angel uh, gave you a little nudge there, nudge huh? Yeah. To, well, uh, Jesus didn't always listen to his parents when he was young, right? Right. That's true. Yeah, he did yeah. his own thing. Yeah. And uh, the other one is I was supposed to fly in a private, uh, not a private, but a a state-owned plane with a senator to mm -hmm. uh, deliver a check to a, a county for a bridge project or something mm -hmm. in on the northern interior of Pennsylvania. And I was looking forward to that because then we were going to go out to western Pennsylvania and I was friends with his family. We were going to have a nice weekend together. Mm -hmm. And literally 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most before I was supposed to leave to meet him, I called him and told him I just had too much work to do to mm -hmm. take off Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. and. Would he mind if I didn't go with him? And he said, no, we'll, we'll do it another time. And uh, about an hour later, uh, I got a call from a reporter asking me to make a statement uh, on Senator Frame's death. Mm. Uh, his plane crashed on takeoff, 
and the two pilots and Senator Frame were killed in the plane crash. Oh my gosh. And uh, I, th I think that was, a, you know, that, that was a slight fib. I really didn't have too much work to do. I yeah. just didn't want to go, but something really prompted me not to go on that mm. trip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so God is very real to me in many ways. Someone's keeping you around, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Someone's got a reason for you being here. Yeah. yeah. My current spiritual director always, we've talked about this mm -hmm. and uh, said, you know, uh, he always says, well, where is God in this? Not in those things, but in every situation that, yeah. we, that we talk about. And yeah. it's an interesting uh, spiritual director. It's the first time I've ever had a lay person as a spiritual director. Okay. And particularly a lay person who's a retired uh, FBI agent. Oh, there you go. So, uh, who, uh, who's, who's great. I don't think he's any taking any more directees though. <laughs> well, it's good to have someone too that kind of understands where you're coming from. Right. And I would imagine that with, you know, the experience of an FBI agent, you right. know, they could uh, kind of commiserate with someone who is, uh, you know, worked with people in positions of power and influence and, you know, done the sometimes challenging things you've needed right. to do professionally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thank you for sharing these stories yeah. and this great wisdom that you've accumulated over these years with us on the podcast today. Um, I hope our listeners at home have enjoyed these stories and uh, little uh, gems of wisdom that you've shared here today as much as I have. Um, you can uh, find out more about the Abbey here at dalesford.org. Every Sunday, we're live streaming at 1030 from the Abbey Church. So you can tune in dalesford.org slash live. Again, that's dalesford.org slash live. And you will see and definitely hear John on the organ there, uh, making things sound beautiful on Sundays as always. And um, if you have any interest in making a retreat here at the Abbey, we are reopened for personal and private retreats. You can call 610-601-8702 and we will get you all set up with a private retreat. It's a beautiful time of year here. We're transitioning from the spring into the summertime almost. And it's just lush and green and verdant here at the Abbey. Everything is in full bloom, and it's a beautiful time to, uh, if you're feeling called, uh, allow yourself to kind of recenter and recalibrate on God's presence in the everyday in your life. So again, that's 610-601-8702 if you're interested in a private retreat. And if you feel as if God is calling you to a life of religious service and religious vocation, you can reach out to the Abbey, dalesford.org slash vocations or vocations at dalesford.org. And that will put you in touch with Abbot Dominic Rossi, who has been on the podcast a couple times before and is the vocations director here. And again, we are always so grateful for your support of Dalesford Abbey and of the Springhouse, this ministry of the Abbey. You can support us by going to dalesford.org slash springhouse hyphen media slash support, or just click the link in our show notes below. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Thanks so much for tuning in today, everyone. John, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you again soon. Okay, thank you, Andrew.